So did you know that if you find your glasses are not performing very well, that in fact you should have gone to Specsavers? Did you know that? Um, or did you know that when it comes to grocery shopping, that every little helps? Did, did you know that? Apparently it does. Or did you know that when you deliberate whether you should spend lots of money on skincare products, did you know that you're worth it? Did you know that? Apparently so. Or when you eventually get round to revarnishing that bit of patio furniture, do you know that there's one product that does exactly what it says on the tin? Did, did you know all that? Yeah, of course you did. You knew that, didn't you? Um, because the reason that you did is because advertising for all of those products is incredibly successful, uh, isn't it? And, and of course... It's big business. Advertising is big business, isn't it? If you, wanna, if you want your products to really sell, um, then you, you, you're going to be looking for the best advertising that you can, that you can get. Um, because it's everywhere, isn't it? Have you noticed that? It's not just on billboards anymore, is it? Or on the sides of buses or on the TV or the radio. It's all over the internet. It's all over social media and so on as well. But the trouble with all of this advertising is, or maybe it's just me, but I don't think so, we just get a bit hardened to its effects, don't you think? We're a bit sceptical about whether we really should have gone to Specsavers, okay? Or, or whether we really are worth forking out all that money for skincare. Or we start to suspect that it might just be a ploy, you know? Um, and it's not just advertising, of course, that we've become sceptical of, is it? We've become sceptical of politicians, you know, and their promises, who, who, who seem to promise lots before an election, but then kind of manage to wriggle out of a lot of it after they've been elected. Um, and actually, in the area of faith and religion as well, we are rightly sceptical, aren't we, of the, the preacher who promises people health and wealth and all kinds of spiritual <coughs> delights if you just listen to him, right? Or you go to his church or you take out a subscription to his ministry or whatever it is. We suspect that just like the advertiser or the politician, he might just be luring you into doing something that will benefit him more than it will benefit you. Um, but there is one way of interesting and enticing people which actually continues to have uh, a deep impact on us, even in our kind of increasingly sceptical uh, age. It's, it's a way that, that very much does encourage us to use a particular product. Uh, it might even cause us to change our mind about a particular politician it's certainly one of the most significant ways of interesting people in the claims of Christ in the Bible. And that is the personal recommendation. Okay, it's the power of a personal testimony. Uh, uh, if I've got a friend who's got loads of patio furniture and he always looks lovely and he says that Ron Seal does exactly what it says on the tin, well, I'm much more likely to give it a go myself, aren't I? And when it comes to the Christian faith, well, actually, time and time again, it's been a friend or it's been a family member. Uh, and their personal testimony of what God has done in their lives that has drawn people to investigate Christ for themselves, isn't it? You, you've probably got that in your own testimony, uh, I would guess. In other words, personal recommendations are extremely powerful things. When someone is obviously excited and enthusiastic about something... Well, people will often sit up and take notice. And friends, here in Psalm 34, the psalmist here, David, is writing a personal recommendation. Okay, He's talking about how God has rescued him from a very difficult situation in his life. And he's saying to the rest of us, just look at what God's like. Okay, He's amazing. Why don't you try him out for yourself? He won't disappoint you, you know. 
That's why David's writing the psalm. He's writing a personal recommendation. And it's a psalm that's quite a contrast from the psalm that we looked at last week, if you were here last week, Psalm 102. Because there we found that the psalmist was writing about a believer expressing their deepest emotions to God in the midst of suffering. You know, they were crying out, weren't they, to God in their pain and their disappointment and their anger. But now we see somebody who has come through the mill, as it were, and, and he survived. He's come out the other side because God has brought him through. And he wants us to know all about him. But something very interesting about the way that the psalm is structured, because it's what we call an acrostic it's an acrostic poem. You might have heard that, that phrase before. In other words, it's a poem where, where every verse begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it's a kind of an A to Z, if you like, of David's rescue by God. It's, it's, it's everything he wants you to know about God saving him from this, this troubled situation that he was in. And he's not just writing the testimony to inform us. But rather, he wants his testimony to change the way that we think and act. He wants to teach us things so that we will know the reality of what he has experienced, so that we too might feel what he feels. And he does that, I think, by calling us to do two things in these verses. He wants us to taste and see, and he wants us to listen and learn. So have a look, first of all, at verses 1 to 10, where he calls us to taste and see. So that's verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. So why does he say that in verse 8? Well, it's because he's experienced an amazing rescue. Look at how it it begins in verses 1 to 3. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord... Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Do you see how totally centered on the Lord he is there? In fact, he mentions the Lord 16, uh, in, in 16 out of the 22 verses of this psalm. It's, it's kind of crystal clear who David thinks is responsible for his rescue. And, and did you notice as well how joyful he is? He's blessing the Lord in verse 1. He's, he's boasting in the Lord in verse 2. He's magnifying the Lord in, in verse 3. So it's clear that this is a man who thinks that God has done something wonderful and he wants us to join in with his praise. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Right? Let's exalt his name together. But, but why? Why does he want us to do that? Verse 4 tells us, I sought the Lord... And he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. That's quite a statement, actually, isn't it? He's saying that David David prayed to him at a time of great need. God answered him and delivered him from all his fears. So so what, what possible danger could David have been in that would bring about such a kind of an outburst of praise to God on his deliverance. It must have been something pretty serious, right? Um, Actually, in in many of the Psalms, um, we're not really clear about the the exact historical event that that lies behind them. Um, But some of them have titles, and and they take us back to events in the Old Testament. This is one of them. So notice that the title of the Psalm tells us that it's of David when he changed his behaviour before Abimelech so that he drove him out and went away. 
And that's an event that's told to us in the book of 1 Samuel uh, in chapter 21. Let, let me read you a few verses, verses 10 to 15 of 1 Samuel 21. You can find it on page 244 uh, in the Church Bibles if you want to follow it. But here are verses 10 to 15 of that chapter. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? And they, did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took those words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands. He made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. And then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you've, you've brought this fellow to, to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And, and that event was one of the most terrifying, I think, episodes in, in David's life. Just, just a little while before that episode had taken place, David had risen to great fame. Okay, He'd risen to great fame as the young man who killed Goliath. You know, the Philistine soldier with his slingshot. And, and as a result, he'd become a, a, a bit of a celebrity in Israel, uh, as well as a famous general in, in King Saul's army. He'd led the way in destroying actually a vast number of the Philistine army. But they'd even written a kind of a pop song uh, about his exploits, yeah, that would have been on everyone's Spotify playlist if they'd had such things. And, and, and it, the song compared King Saul's exploits with his more successful General David's uh, exploits. Uh, with the resulting catchy chorus, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands, which admittedly is not Coldplay, is it? Um, but it was quite catchy at the time. Um, and the impact of, of David's increasing fame has made Saul very angry indeed. In fact, so angry and so jealous and so paranoid that he tried to have David killed uh, on several occasions such that David was forced to flee the country. Uh, in fact, first he went to the temple of the Lord um, and, and he was given food and he was given a sword, if you remember the story, which happened to be Goliath's sword that David captured when he killed Goliath. So he was given food and a sword and then he went on the run. But where did he run to? Well, he ran to the very last place that anyone would think of looking for David the Philistine slayer, and that was in Gath, in Philistine territory. In fact, he ran to the court of the Philistine king, right? who was a man called Abimelech, or as he's called in 1 Samuel, King Achish, which is probably a, a title or a, a nickname, something like that. So that just goes to show how desperate David was, doesn't he? He couldn't stay in Israel because he was facing certain death. And so he went to his other arch enemy, the, the, the king of the Philistines, and not only that, but he did so clutching the sword of the great hero Goliath. <sighs> Sounds a pretty suicidal thing to do to me. <laughs> what, what, what sort of state of mind do you think he must have been in to decide to walk into the court of the king whose army you've decimated, clutching the sword of the greatest of their hero? That's nuts, isn't it? In fact, Psalm 56 gives us another take on that 
event and, and shows us David's feelings when he was there just before he was rescued. And he says, all day long, my enemies twist my words. They're always plotting to harm me. They conspire, they lurk, they are eager to take my life. In other words, David was quite literally expecting to die at the hands of the Philistines. And so what does he do where he pretends to be insane? Here's how verse 13 of 1 Samuel 21 puts it. He changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands, made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. In other words, he, he kind of makes a complete fool of himself. He, he, he behaves like a sort of pitiful wreck of a, of a person causing King Achish to say, well, I've got enough madmen in, in my court as it is, so, so get rid of him. And they let him go. And what is David's response to that event? Does he say, you know, what a clever man I am to come up with such a cunning, shrewd plan? Well, no. (laughs) Rather, he says, Psalm 34, verse 4, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. In other words, it was God who rescued him, he says. God who delivered him. And that is what David rejoices in. There he was, staring death in the face, and God saved him. And, and what's more staggering is that in Psalm 56, you know, written about the same event, but, but where David doesn't know the outcome yet, David can say, in God I trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? See, totally confident that God would be there for him and rescue him. And that's exactly what God did. Look at verses 6 and 7 of our psalm. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Do you see, David is quite simply overjoyed that God should choose to rescue him from this situation. It's the Lord, he says, who has, who has rescued him. So what's the the challenge here for you and me? Verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Do you see, he's, he's urging us to taste and see for ourselves that the Lord is good. Because God promises to rescue those who trust in him. In other words, he wants as many people as possible to experience the saving hand of God just like he did. And and not just to know it in their heads, you know, a bit of intellectual information, but but to have known that rescue in their own experience. Yeah, to taste and see it, he says. And that's because he knows, verse 5, that those who look to him are radiant... And their faces shall never be ashamed. Do do you see the point? David really does rejoice in the rescue that God has provided for him. And he believes that we can know the same rescuing ourselves. And and so we might say, well, how is that possible? You know, in what sense can we taste the rescue that David enjoyed? You know, should, should we perhaps be, be expecting God to save us from kind of any similar, you know, death-defying situations? Will he, will he always step in and stop bad things happening to us or stop things going wrong um, in our lives? Well, of course, there's no promise 
in the Bible that God will, will protect Christians in that sense from any suffering and adversity. We saw that last week, didn't we, in, in Psalm 102. We saw the psalmist's despair in, in, uh, in that psalm. And David knew that too. But what David also knew is God's power in the midst of the trouble. Just, just see how he puts it in, in verses 9 and 10. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. So in the midst of the trouble, David can say that he lacked no good thing. God was there for him in the trouble. And friends, for those of us experiencing anxiety or pain or suffering in, in any sense, that is a great encouragement, isn't it? Because although, as, as we saw last week, we might experience times when we feel as though God is, is distant, yet the truth of this psalm is that he isn't, right? He will uphold you. He will stand by you. He will keep you in the midst of your suffering. So taste and see, says David. Just see if God will not keep you in, in, in your days of darkness. But of course, for us as Christians, there is a far deeper fulfillment of this psalm than than even David himself could see, isn't there? For whilst David was in mortal danger, friends, we are in far greater spiritual danger. Whilst he faced physical death, we face spiritual death and eternal condemnation. And yet, when Jesus died on the cross, he was taking all of our guilt and shame and wrongdoing on himself so that those who look to him, verse 5, are radiant. They they can be forgiven such that their faces need never be ashamed. In, In other words, if David received a great rescue, well, friends, you and I, because of Jesus, have received the greatest rescue ever. And we should be shouting from the rooftops about the amazing rescue that we have received. We should be saying to others, taste and see that the Lord is good, that blessed is the person who takes refuge in him. But friends, often we don't, do we? Um, And maybe the reason is that we've forgotten the wonder of being rescued. Just what terrible eternal peril we were in when we were rescued. You know, maybe the years have rolled by since we first, you know, trusted Christ. And maybe the worries of life have kind of crowded in. Maybe slowly but but surely we've become complacent about that. You know, maybe that first love and joy has, has just grown cold. And we need to recapture that kind of taste and see attitude of of david here it's an easy thing to do friends isn't it you know just to grow thankless to to grow complacent to just take everything that god has given us and the rescue we have in jesus for granted and, and without recognizing god or thanking god and david's attitude here of joy and and relief at being rescued his desire to see others Tasting and seeing what he has experienced. I think that's a real challenge to us, isn't it? To recapture that first love. 
to ponder afresh our rescue in Christ and, and come back to God in, in joyful gratitude for what he's done for us. You know, friends, if David here could say in verse 6 that this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles, if he could say that, well, how much more can we? We who have been saved, not from mere physical peril, but from the greatest peril of all, the peril of hell itself. David says, taste and see. But that's not the only thing he calls us to do, um, uh, is it? Because he's got something else to teach us from his experience here, uh, and that is to listen and learn in in verses 11 to 22. Have a look at verse 11. Uh, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So it's it's as though David is is kind of calling us to sort of sit down with him, if you like, and, and learn from him as our teacher. And and what does he want us to learn? Well, two two things here, I think. Firstly, in verses 11 to 14, he wants us to learn greater devotion to God's ways. Look at verse 11 again. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And do you remember what he said in verse 9? O fear the Lord, you his saints. Those who fear him have no lack they lack nothing in other words one of the key things that david has learned through this near death experience with the king of the philistines and the and his rescue from that is to fear the lord you might think that's a strange thing to learn uh, you might might have thought you know david might say he's learned to love the lord more or he's learned to pray to the lord more or or something it's pretty clear in the psalm he, he does love the lord he does pray To him, of course. But the thing he wants us to know that he does in the light of his his rescue experience is to fear the Lord. It's it's this that I want to teach you. He says, this is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to live in the light of God's rescue. I want you to fear the Lord. So what does it mean to fear the Lord then? Well, it certainly doesn't mean to be afraid of him. But rather, um, in, in the Bible, to fear God means to hold him in, in honour, uh, to revere him, if you like, to respect him for, for who he is and what he's like. Because he's God, and he's holy, and he's glorious, and he's, he's majestic, he's Lord of all, such that when you truly fear the Lord, then we, we don't fear anyone or anything else. Which is why David could say in verse 4 that I sought the Lord and he delivered me from all of my fears. In other words, when God is the one that we truly fear and honour and revere, then we view everything else in its proper perspective as well. But, But notice that David also wants us to see that fearing the Lord is not just an attitude of mind... But it's a change of life. He he says, look, my my rescue made me see God for who he is, the great saviour and rescuer. But it also showed me that I need to live in the light of that rescue as well. I need to change my life as a result of my rescue. So what does fearing God look like in practice then? Well, verse 12, what man is there who desires life, loves many days that he may see good? 
Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying that a life lived in the fear of God means the godly use of your tongue. That's what it means. And it means a rejection of all that's evil. And it means the deliberate pursuit of of all that's good. You know, it's, it's, it's another way of saying that if you've genuinely been rescued by God, if you've known the the joy, the delight of forgiveness and, and new life with Christ. Well, you need to walk in God's ways. You need to be devoted to pursuing holiness and God's standards for living. Otherwise, that claim to be rescued, it's just a spurious, isn't it? It's a, it's a sham. Do you see, a genuine desire to live God's way is a good sign that you've been rescued. Not, not that we'll be perfect, of course. You know, not, not that we won't have some serious ups and downs along the way and find ourselves wrestling with sin. Of course we will. But that our hearts are devoted to him. And that is seen in how we live. In how we'll increasingly bite our tongues when we're tempted to snap back. Or how we'll battle against lust in our hearts. Or we'll actively root out the sin that's in our lives and and desire instead to grow to be more like Christ. And all because we've been rescued and so we fear the Lord. In other words, our master is not ourselves. And it's not peer pressure and it's not cultural expectation anymore. It's the Lord, right? He alone is is the object of our reverence and our honor. And that shows It shows in our everyday life. Now, friend, I don't know about you, but I find that deeply challenging. Because David is calling me here to show my fear of the Lord in my everyday life. He's he's effectively asking me, isn't he? Steve, how is your life different from that of your non-Christian friends or family? Steve, you say you fear God. But where's the evidence? Uh, That's the challenge here, isn't it? And and not to drive us to guilt, but rather to an honest assessment about how we're doing in the light of the amazing rescue that we've been given. You know, on... uh, on this day that will no doubt become a notable date in sporting history, won't it? Um, uh, whether we win or lose, um, it will become a date that we'll remember, I'm sure. Um, on a day like that, I'm reminded of a, a famous Christian sportsman who was an amazing example, actually, of what we've just been talking about. He wasn't a footballer. He was a runner. Um, Eric Liddell uh, was made famous in the Chariots of Fire film, wasn't he? He won the, the gold medal in the Paris Olympics in uh, 1924. And by the following year, he was out on the mission field in China where he lived out the rest of his days as a missionary. And, and I, I was reading this week one of the eulogies that was given at his funeral uh, where it was said of him, what was the secret of his consecrated life and far-reaching influence? Absolute surrender to God's will as revealed in Jesus Christ. His was a God-controlled life. 
And he followed his master and Lord with devotion that never flagged and with an intensity of purpose that made men see both the reality and power of true religion. Friends, wouldn't we want someone to say that of us at our funeral? (laughs) That, That our lives were ones of absolute surrender to the will of God in Christ. That's what David means here by the fear of the Lord. Right? It means an attitude of submission to God in all his holiness and majesty and a life lived in the light of it, in in practical daily obedience to him. So David says, listen and learn. And the first thing he wants us to learn is greater devotion to God's ways. But there's a second thing as well uh, as we finish up. Uh, He wants us to, to learn, this is in verses 15 to the end, which is a greater understanding of God's perspective. And did you notice what what David says about the difference between the righteous in these verses and those who do evil? Do you you notice the, the difference there? For example, have a look at verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous. His ears towards their cry. Or look at verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. Which again, doesn't mean that suffering won't won't happen because verse 19 says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. And often Christians face more suffering, not less, simply because we follow Christ. But it's the promise, isn't it, of God's never failing presence and help in our suffering to to ultimately sustain us through it and bring us to final salvation from it. The Lord delivers him out of them all, verse 19. But friends, then contrast that with what David says about those who do evil. Verse 15 again, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Or verse 21, affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Do do you see the picture? God is for the righteous and against those who do evil. God will save the righteous while those who do evil will perish. And friends, the righteous here are not the self-righteous. right? They're not the do-gooders. But rather they are those who have received God's gracious offer of rescue in in Jesus. And those who do evil here, they are us if we have not accepted God's rescue. In other words, friends, God's perspective on life is that humanity is heading towards a day of judgment. A day when we will all stand before the true and the living God and face the just penalty for our wrongdoing, for our our rejection of of the God who made us. And and there are only two kinds of people in the world on, on that day. Those who will bow the knee before God willingly and receive his rescue and and those who oppose him. And we need to make up our minds which category we are in before we meet him face to face on that final day, as we will. And for David here, for our psalmist here, he is in no doubt that to be in the camp of the righteous, of those who cry to the Lord for rescue, well, that's the place to be. Because God is for those people. God hears and delivers those people. Right? God guards and keeps and will vindicate those people. There'll be an end 
to their suffering and their pain. Let's look at how David ends the psalm in verse 21, 22. Affliction will slay the wicked. Those who hate the righteous will be condemned. But the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Friends, that's the perspective we are to have. And especially when we're going through tough times. It's the perspective that knows that there is an end. That this life is just a brief shadow. And the reality is yet to come. And that if we find our refuge in him in this life, then we will find that God will not let us down in the life to come. We will not be condemned. And in the meantime, when when life is hard and we feel like David did and his times of greatest need, we can claim the promise of verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. Friend, what a great verse to to promise to take into this week, isn't it? That in the midst of trial, God will not abandon us. And friend, if you're feeling brokenhearted and crushed in spirit, I guess some of us will be this morning. Here's a truth to take to heart, that God is near to you, right? Even if you don't feel it, he will save you and bring you through. And how do we know that God will keep his promise? How do we know he's not just like the advertiser or the the politician, you know, who's offering you more than he can deliver? Well, friend, it's because God has already proved that he can do it. He's already shown in this world that he can sustain the righteous through suffering and finally bring them to heaven. Hasn't he? Because that's exactly what he's done already in the Lord Jesus. And Jesus, of course, is the fulfillment of this psalm. He is the righteous one. He's the anointed king of whom King David was just the forerunner. King Jesus was despised and rejected. He suffered unjustly at the hands of evil men. He was thrust into the very darkest night of the soul. Yet God kept his promise and sustained him and saved him. He protected his servants and not one of his bones was broken. Verse 20. And then on the third day, he rose again, having defeated death, triumphant, victorious, because the Lord redeems the life of his servants, verse 22. And none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. And friends, as we follow in the footsteps of of our Lord Jesus, our saviour and our example, well, we too can have absolute confidence that God will never leave us or forsake us. You see, friends, ultimately, it's Jesus who asks us to taste and see that the Lord is good here. It's Jesus who urges us not to grow weary or complacent of the Lord's goodness. And that's because he's experienced it himself. It's also ultimately Jesus here who says, listen and learn. And that's because he feared the Lord and found the Lord to be true to his promises. So, friends, all that remains is for us to taste and see, for us to listen and learn. And then we will be able to say with him, from our experience too, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Shall we pray?
Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the amazing testimony of this psalm. Um, and we pray that you would use it to lead us to, um, to joyful gratitude as, as we ponder afresh our rescue in Christ. Um, a, a gratitude that would, uh, would spill out in calling others to know it as well. Uh, and we pray that you would also use it to help us learn afresh the fear of the Lord. Um, and in ways that would stir our hearts to renewed devotion um, and a devotion that's seen in how we live. And we pray for your Spirit's help in all of this. And we pray in Jesus' name.